As I mentioned a moment ago, this morning we're going to be looking together at the Lord's Prayer. One of the most famous, maybe the most famous part of the Bible. Certainly one of the most quoted texts in human history. It's interesting that that this prayer, this most famous passage in all the Bible, falls as a kind of aside, almost like a diversion from what Jesus was mainly talking about. We've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount section by section together since the beginning of this year. And the section we've been in lately is a section where Jesus is talking about religious hypocrisy and he's giving examples of things religious people tend to do and of the ways those things can be more about us than they are about God. So he's talked about giving to the poor and now he's talking about prayer and he's going to talk about fasting and the passage to follow. And right in the middle of that section that's really about something else, he goes off on a riff on what healthy prayer looks like. This most famous part of the Bible is almost like a tack-on to his argument. And thank goodness he decided to tack it on. What's, in, what's, what's also interesting about the Lord's Prayer and where it falls in what Jesus is doing here is that it comes on the heels of this warning that he gives against mindlessly stringing together words to try to unlock the favor of the gods or control them. He's just warned his followers not to pray like the pagans, like the Gentiles who heap up, he says, empty phrases, things that don't really mean anything to them, just pass through their mouths, but they don't register in their brains and they don't affect their hearts. It's interesting that the Lord's Prayer falls right after a warning not to do that when you pray because that's precisely how this prayer has been misused for centuries. Not only recitations, in, in church settings, where the thought is that maybe if you heap up more and more and more of them, they'll actually heap up more and more and more credit with God. But the almost magical use of it, even in places like sports locker rooms. How many people play organized sports right before the game? It's almost a chant-like recitation of it. Thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Sick them on three. One, two, three. Sick them. What is that? Honestly, it's probably been misused by every single one of us too. Every one of us in here that's ever used the Lord's Prayer has probably misused it, if we're honest. Because it's so familiar to us. If you were raised in a a Christian family, probably so familiar to you. And maybe even to some of you for whom Christianity is a little bit unfamiliar. That it can be difficult to actually see it. It becomes sort of the backdrop for your life. Not something that that punches you in the way that it should when you come across it. It can be tough to see how radical its assumptions are about how we relate to God. It can be tough to see what a huge mindset shift this prayer would mean for us if we really prayed it from the heart. It can be tough to see how useful this prayer is, not just as words to be quoted but as a kind of template for what prayer should look like a set of of basic themes that should be coming up often in the way that we pray to God something that's that's relevant for building prayers about anything that we're facing this morning we want to take it piece by piece we want to walk through it slowly to try to bring some of this beauty into focus we're going to take three steps as we do that 
What does healthy Christian prayer look like? That's what Jesus is trying to answer for us. He's explained what not to pray like. Don't pray like this, he says. Now he's turned to a positive example. Pray instead like this. What does Christian prayer look like? This morning we're going to see Christian prayer first is based on who God is. Christian prayer second is focused on what God wants. And Christian prayer third is honest about what we need. That outline should be in your worship guide that you received on your way in here. Feel free just to use that to follow along this morning. I want to begin by reading the text, though. Would you please stand with me in honor of God's word while I do that? I'm going to begin in verse 9 of Matthew chapter 6 and read through verse 15. This is the word of the Lord. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Christian prayer is first and foremost based on who God is. That's the point that comes out in verse 9, what I just read. Remember, I said this already, I just want to say it again. This is such a familiar text. It's so often taken out of its context and just used, as it should be, in our worship that it can be hard to remember exactly where it fit in what Jesus was doing. We have to see that if we really want to understand why he's saying the things that he's saying. What he's just said, before he gets to the Lord's Prayer, before he turns to pray like this, what he's just said is, don't pray like the pagans who heap up empty phrases thinking that that by their many words they'll be heard. And the reason he says you shouldn't pray like that is tied to who God is. In verse 8, don't pray like that because your father knows what you need before you ask him. He's not a lock waiting on you to find the right key to open him. He knows what you need and he's going to want to give it to you. So just come to him. Don't try to control him. Now verse 9 begins with a then. Pray then like this. So because God is your father who already knows what you need, pray like this. And then as if Jesus knew that his disciples, like us, and they tend to forget, he returns to the same point in the first line of the Lord's Prayer. He goes back to the fatherhood of God and says, and begins the prayer with our Father in heaven. Now here's the point that he's trying to make. When you pray to God, you've got to pray to God based on who he is to you. He's not a machine. He's not an impersonal force in the universe. He is someone who is to you Father in heaven. Those two dimensions to God's personality, to his identity, are the foundation for every prayer every Christian should ever give. We pray to God as Father in heaven. Now, what I'm saying here, what Jesus is saying here is actually, it's just really common in our experience. You communicate with somebody based on who they are, based on who they are to you. 
the one that you're speaking to makes a huge difference for how you speak to them and for what you might choose to ask of them, right? I mean, have you ever accidentally sent an email or a group text that was meant for somebody specific? You accidentally sent it out to the whole group, but it was meant for, for one person? You know, and the humiliation that comes from that, even if it's not that touchy of a subject, it's still embarrassing because you wouldn't have talked like that if you were emailing the group. You talk differently to your advisor or your professor than you do via text with your friends. You write your spouse with different language than you'd use to your accountant. I speak to my son Walter with different words and with a different authority than I use with the Comcast customer service guy. You get the point. Jesus' description of God is the foundation for all meaningful prayer. Father in heaven. Those two poles, if you will, always in balance with one another. What does it mean to pray to him as father? You pray to him as one who pays attention to his own, who knows exactly what they need, who's not too busy for any detail in their lives so long as it's important to them. If it's important to them, it's important to him. He cares. He's invested in their good. He loves to be near them, loves to be with them. It's shockingly personal. We're used to calling God Father because the text does so often in the New Testament. But when Jesus was using these words, and when he was not only choosing to call God Father himself, but telling even his disciples to refer to him in this way, he was shifting the terms of engagement with God in a tectonic way. Massive change to what was expected for his audience. They were good with the transcendence of God with God being the God of all heavens and earth, the one who is the reason for everything that exists. They got that. But he was unapproachable in some sense that was appropriate. There was a temple that only certain people could go into and rooms in that temple that only a a handful of people could go into and there was a system in place that meant death if you didn't go through it. The whole point of that system was partly unapproachable, not worthy, not yet, not fully. And Jesus in this prayer is forecasting something brand new. Something, a relationship that he came to make possible. Where anyone who's with him can approach God at any time, where they are, as they are, as his children. But when they do, they approach him not just as a father who knows what they need and wants to give them, what they need they also approach him as a father who is in heaven as the father who is not like us who is not limited in the ways that we're limited he isn't subject to our blinders that can only see certain things but never the whole picture he isn't limited by our weakness as if he can only do as much as we could do no, 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 this God, this Father that you come to, this Father in heaven, this is the God who speaks and worlds come to be. He is the God who marks off oceans and raises up mountains. He's the God before whom kings are like grasshoppers, before whom nations rise and fall. And that's just on this earth, one of many planets orbiting one star of Many, many, many stars in one of unnumbered galaxies 
full of unnumbered stars whose names he knows, who answer to him, whose presence he calls out on command. This God of the universe is the God that Christians call Father who loves and knows them by name and even numbers the hairs on their heads. That's a staggering statement about who God is to you. He is your Father in heaven. It's a common connection made through the Bible. Think of Psalm 23, pointing ahead, not using Father language yet, but getting closer. The Lord, the God of all the universe, is my shepherd, mine. He knows me. Isaiah 57's promise from God's own mouth that I dwell in the high and holy place and also with Him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, who is crushed. One, one way or another, this language has got to challenge us. I mean, Jesus first here, as I've already mentioned, it would have been shocking to hear God referred to in this kind of personality, this kind of personal way, as Father. One who wants to hear from you in a personal, direct, unmediated way because of Jesus. I think for us, in our time, our place, the in heaven language is probably more of a challenge, something we need to hear. He is not our buddy. He's not our butler. He is holy. He is not like us. The whole reason to pray to Him is that He's not like us. He is far beyond what we can understand, much less what we could control. That is the God who comes to us as Father. I wonder, is this how you relate to Him? Maybe if you're here uh, considering Christianity for the first time wondering if, if there's anything to it, wondering what it would mean for you to identify with Jesus. If you're here and, and that's where you are, I hope you see the beauty and the radical implications of the way Jesus tells us to address God. If you were to be with Him, this is what it would mean. It would mean acknowledging that He is God in heaven, that He rules in a way that you don't. That your inability to, over the course of your life, relate to Him as your Lord and Master has been a rebellion of a sorts against the King who deserves absolute allegiance from you. That's a huge deal. That means death, friends. But He has also made Himself Father to all who will turn to Him. And that is the essence of what Jesus has done. What the gospel says is that Jesus came for those who had rejected him. That while we were still his enemies, enemies of the God in heaven, this God took on flesh, walked on earth, became killable so he could die for us. And that through his death, we can be adopted as his children. The message of the gospel is that you can be beloved children to the God who reigns in heaven. If you'll trust in Jesus... Instead of in yourself. That's all you've got to do this morning. It will mean submission to him. But it will also mean you get access to the God who controls everything. And the promise that when you come to him in faith through Jesus, it makes him happy. That he never gets tired of hearing what you need. That he's always honored 
when you turn to him instead of somebody else. Christian prayer is always based on who God is. He is Father in heaven. And Christian prayer is also focused on what God wants. This is the next unexpected turn in Jesus' prayer that he presents to us here. This prayer begins not with the things we might want for ourselves, but with the things God wants. It expresses not just our own blinded experience of the world, but our hearts aligned with His, so that what's important to Him becomes important to us too. What do you ask of a Father who's in heaven? When He's Father to you, and when He reigns in heaven, what do you ask of Him? Two sets of three different requests come next. Jesus gives us two sets of three. The first set of three focus on what God wants. On His will. On His kingdom and on His name. So, so remember, remember where this falls. Jesus has just said, don't pray like this. And, and his two examples were, don't pray like the hypocrite who just prays in order to make a name for himself who heaps up lots of fancy words, making sure everyone else is hearing him, because what he really wants is not something from God, but something from these people who are listening. He wants to have a reputation that rings out in his community as a holy man. Don't pray like one who's trying to build a name for themselves. No, pray hallowed be your name. And then he says, don't pray like the pagans who are heaping up empty phrases, thinking that by their many words they'll be heard. In other words, don't try to control God by finding just the right way to say something. Now, instead of trying to control him and bring him into line with your will, you're supposed to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is flipping the script that he's just been condemning in his sermon. And he tells us we got to focus our prayers on what God wants before we focus them on what we need. So here's the three requests. Let's, let's just walk through them one by one. They all make the same point. The Christian's heart in prayer is with God's heart. So Jesus says, pray, hallowed be thy name. To hallow something is to set it apart as holy. To set it apart as not normal, as something supernatural. In other words, what we're praying is that God's, God would be known all around us for the unique, unprecedented, unmatched power, goodness, love, and holiness that is his. That he would be famous among the people that know us and ultimately famous across the whole world. That's what he's praying. That God would be known as God. A name is somebody's reputation, what you're known for. And the Christian in their prayers, is supposed to be jealous for God's reputation. The Christian can't stand to see someone else get credit for what God deserves to be praised for. He, he can't stand it. can't tolerate it. The Christian longs to see God get the credit he deserves for his goodness and power and love and justice and all the other beautiful things about his character. And, and the Christian believes that the most important thing about any of us the most important thing about anything else in the world is that we bring glory to God. That's what it is to pray that his name would be hallowed or set apart. The next 
petition builds on the same thing, same idea. Pray that His kingdom would come. To pray for His kingdom to come is to pray for His rule to be embraced and acknowledged. In a sense, God has always ruled. He rules now. He is in heaven doing what He will. He, he has a providence that governs everything. But in another sense, right now, there are still many things about this world that are not what God will make them to be, that are rebellious against Him, that are broken from what He built. To pray for His kingdom to come is to pray for what God has promised to be, to actually be in our experience, for it to come now. There's a big gap between what the world is like now, between what we're like now, and what's coming, what God has promised us. So we have been promised a world with no sin, with no injustice, with no sorrow or death. And Christians, Christians should long for that world. They're with Him. They're with God. God has given up His own Son to make that world possible. That's how important it is to Him. And Christians are those who want what their Father wants. So in our hearts, we're supposed to long for this world free of sin and sorrow and death and injustice and all of that, like God does, and to, to actually pray for it, to wake up in the morning thinking about that world and how wonderful it will be and how badly we want to see it. It should, it should be with us as, as a kind of presence in our lives each day. But in the context of this sermon about the kingdom, Jesus has been focusing much more close to the ground even than that. So this whole sermon, we, one of the ways we've been talking about the Sermon on the Mount is that it's an, it's an explanation of what the kingdom will look like. Here's what you'll look like, in other words, if you're with the kingdom. If you want to be with Jesus, then here's a template for life. And what kind of things has he been talking about? He's been talking about what the kingdom will look like when it comes. He's been talking about things like, like people who are poor in spirit who are humble, who are grieved over sin, who are meek, who aren't real quick to jump on each other when, when you feel like you've been slighted. People who love peace more than they love drama. People who love mercy more than they love making sure they get what they're owed by everyone who may have wronged them. Jesus has been talking about human character, what it looks like for us to live like God's glory matters more than our glory. Like we trust him more than we trust ourselves. This is the kind of portrait Jesus has been drawing. This is what it would look like for his kingdom to come. Not just a big, massive scale into injustice, sorrow, sin, and death, but also people whose lives start to look like they believe God is who he says that he is. Start to treat one another like that. If you think of the Beatitudes as the template of God's kingdom come in an individual's life, then you can see how relevant and useful this prayer can be. Put a pin in that. We're coming back to it. The last petition here, praying for what God wants, will mean praying that God's will be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying that what God wants from His people is what His people give Him, freely and fully, from love and not from fear. And this is obviously not where we are now, so we pray for it. It isn't where I am, is it where you are? So we pray. There's a gap between what we want, what we long for, and what's real. Now, I think that's the prayer. It's pretty simple, those, those three petitions. We want to pray, we want to prioritize in our prayers what God wants, which is His name glorified, getting the credit that He deserves. His kingdom come on earth 
and his will being done freely and fully without fear by his people. I mean, prayer itself is pretty clear, I think. Before we move on, though, I want to make sure you notice three huge implications of this kind of God-centered start to the prayer. The Lord's Prayer starts with God, not with us. Huge implications of Jesus starting here. Praying like this, I want you to see, is costly. But praying like this is affordable. And praying like this is valuable. It's costly. It's affordable. It's also valuable. That's what I mean. It will cost you to pray like this. Maybe you noticed when we, when, we, when we passed over the your will be done language that it echoes another passage that will come later. Jesus prayed this exact prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane before he died. He knew what was waiting for him when he prayed this prayer. He prayed it to the one who was his life, his father. He knew that he was to be separated from him so that we could be joined to him. And the horror of that thought moved him to pray that God would take away that cup from him. He had a direct and honest relationship with his father. He just told him what he wanted. He wanted another way. At the end of it, though, he prayed to him, not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus was killed shortly after that. The point is that praying like this, could be, it could be deadly to you. Praying that his will be done instead of your own could mean death. And I want to say it even more strongly than that. It may, not, it may not mean a direct physical death because you have joined yourself to Jesus. But in another sense, it's a promise that you'll die. Because Jesus described discipleship following him as a taking up of your cross. Discipleship is to live a life of self-denial, of self-killing, of death to every part of ourself that stands opposed to Him. So if you're going to pray, Thy will be done, you need to know it's going to cost you everything. I heard another pastor observe recently that that we're focused often on whether God or Jesus or the Bible or Christianity, on whether these things are relevant to our lives. That's not inappropriate. We should be looking for how they're useful, for how it speaks to our needs. The Bible often does this. It speaks directly to our needs. But the real question, the really fundamental question, is not whether or not the Bible or Jesus relevant to my life. The real question is, how am I to be relevant to Him? To His kingdom? To His glory? And to His will? He's not with me. He's not on my side in the way we normally mean that. He's not a sort of power tool for building my name or my kingdom. No, I'm with Him. 
I am a subject who wants nothing more than to be useful to what the king is doing. The question isn't, how, show me how Jesus is relevant to me. The question is, what in my life is relevant to his name, his kingdom, and his will? That's a fundamental shift. Christian prayer depends upon it. Costs you everything to pray like this. But friends, you can afford to pray like this because when you pray, you don't pray to some capricious, power-hungry, self-serving king like human history is full of. This isn't Henry VIII that you're addressing. You pray to your Father who is in heaven. You can pray for his will rather than bending him to your will because you trust that, that he sees more of the picture than you do. He's in heaven, you're not. You can pray to him that knowing that, that, that he knows what you need more deeply than you do, that, that he has the love of a father for you and he would never hold back what's best for his children. That's just not who he is. That isn't what he would do. And friends, honestly, Jesus, Jesus, the one who prayed this prayer himself and ended up dead because of it, he is the best evidence we could ever look for to know that we can trust God with his will rather than imposing ours on him. Because what he's shown us in Christ is that he wouldn't even hold back his own son. That he even delivered him so that we could be set free so that we could be brought in to his family as his children. And if he, wouldn't, if he wouldn't spare Jesus, if we wouldn't even hold back him, then what? how could he possibly keep from us anything that we need? He wouldn't do that. You can afford to pray, thy will be done, because you know when you pray, you pray to your Father who is in heaven, and you can trust him. Jesus has proven it. And finally... Final implication. It's costly to pray like this. You can afford it, though, because of who you're praying to. You can trust him with this kind of prayer. And finally, you need to see how valuable it is to pray like this. How useful it is to use this guide as you pray about the things that matter to you in your life. One of the things that I think has blinded us to the power of the Lord's Prayer is sometimes seeing it just as the words that are already there rather than seeing it as a template, as a kind of set of themes that we can expand in our own prayers about what matters to us. It isn't just to be quoted. It's to be used. I want you to see how valuable it is to pray like this. Just take, for example, take a conflict that you're having with someone close to you. I bet every single one of you has one. Maybe not a huge one, maybe minor, but I bet it's on your mind. It's weighing on you. Take a conflict with somebody close to you. And now imagine, imagine praying about that conflict using Jesus' first three requests here. Praying that God's name would be honored in this conflict. That there would be some supernatural solution. Some sort of reconciliation that wouldn't be possible apart from Him. Pray that this conflict would become a venue for God proving His power, His goodness and love. 
Pray to Him, in other words, as if your reputation isn't what matters most. I don't want to be the one who fixes this. I want to watch this get fixed. Hallowed be your name. Pray that His kingdom would come in the conflict. In other words, pray in it for character by which we find peace. For people who care deeply about peace in which we become people who are merciful, who don't lock in on other people's flaws, but show them mercy when those flaws show up, who don't take offense easily because we're meek. I mean, all these things that Jesus says or describe people who are in his conflict, or, or in his kingdom, are the very things that tend to cause conflict in our lives. A lack of peace, a lack of mercy, a lack of meekness, a lack of poverty of spirit. So when when you're faced with conflict, you pray that his kingdom would come. Make me merciful. Make them merciful. Make me meek. Make them meek. And then you pray that his will would be done, whatever it is. I've got to give up my desire to see my vision of a resolution happen. Typically, when you're in conflict, you have something on your mind that you know you would like to see. And it's not wrong to, to pray specifically to God. We're about to see this as we wrap up this prayer. We should bring our needs directly to them as we see them, knowing that he can filter them. He knows better than we do. But we ought to also be willing to pray to him, your will be done, whatever that is, in this conflict. Otherwise, we're going to try to control people. We're going to try to manipulate results. We're going to be very political in the way we position ourselves in relationships. We're going to try to get others on our side so that we'll have more force against our combatants. Rather than just saying, your will be done. I'm with your agenda in this. Show me what it is. You can pray like this for anything that's bothering you. What is it that's weighing you down? Where are you trying to figure out what to do? What difference would it make for you to pray that God's name would be honored in that situation? That His kingdom would come in that situation, that his will would be done in that situation. And here's where we end. Healthy Christian prayer. It's it's prayer that's based on who God is. It's focused on what God wants. But then finally, it's honest about what we need. Just because we're supposed to give it up to him, to pray with hearts that want what he wants, to pray that His will be done instead of our own doesn't mean that He doesn't want us to come straight to Him with exactly what it is we think we need and just lay it out there. He wants us to pray like children to a father. And that's how children treat their father. They just ask. And then they ask again. And then they ask again and again and again. That's the way kids relate to fathers and mothers that they trust. And that's the way Jesus says we're supposed to treat our Father in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. The first of this next three requests. Give us exactly what we need for today. This is so low to the ground, isn't it? Isn't that beautiful? Just give us bread. Let's just start there. Give me something to eat. I need, I need a meal and not anything fancy. I just need something to put in my belly. Give me bread for this day. It's an echo of God's provision of manna for the children of Israel when they were wandering in the wilderness in the Old Testament. And part of the manna system was that you couldn't stockpile it. And if you tried to to store it up to make sure that you were good, in other words, if you trusted your future to the manna instead of to God, the gift, 
rather than the giver, it would turn bad. It would rot. be useless. Jesus is echoing that and calling on us not to trust our future to God by praying for what we need today. And it's not that we can't ever pray for the future. We should be honest with him about what we need. We just shouldn't lock in on a particular future and make it our demand of him. Jesus is going to talk about that a little bit later in chapter 6. We'll come back to this same theme. He talks about today's trouble being plenty for today. We don't need to go fishing around for other troubles to bring into today from the future. No, give me my daily bread. And with it, everything I need to face whatever is coming for me today. It's an expression of ongoing trust that he can handle the future. I'm going to focus on him giving me what I need now and leave the rest to him. If you focus on the future too much, you're going to end up praying like a pagan who's looking to control things rather than like a child who looks to his father for everything he needs. Pray for daily bread. And in daily bread, see everything physical that you need. God cares about what you need. Nothing's too small for him. Pray for forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. We don't just pray for physical things. We pray for our spiritual needs as well. Not all of us have labels that we know how how to apply. It could be that you're just testing the waters now with Christianity. You aren't sure exactly about the whole system and everything that comes with it. But I think, I'm confident because of what the Bible says, that you know, you do know in your heart that you haven't been what you should be. You know it because your conscience tells you. You know it because you've seen yourself do things that you resent when other people do them. These are needs that are in us, whether we label them correctly or not. And God wants us bringing them to Him to pray for forgiveness. He wants us to want His forgiveness. It's a a point so important that Jesus actually expands on it in verses 14 and 15. Did you notice that when we read it earlier? After the Lord's Prayer, He comes back to this forgiveness idea. And he says it in some really stark language. If you forgive others their trespasses, your father will forgive you. If you don't forgive others their trespasses, your father's not going to forgive you. It's an idea we saw in the Beatitudes with the the blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy idea. And what we said there applies here too. Jesus isn't trying to, to create this cause and effect. The Apostle Paul is much more into causes than what Jesus is in his teaching. He's not necessarily drawing a this, then this. He's trying to draw connections between things. That connect, there is a connection that's always there between God's forgiveness of us and our forgiveness of other people. You never have a situation where a person has been forgiven by God and refuses to forgive other people. Can't happen. That is the stark message Jesus is trying to communicate. So as we pray for forgiveness, if we expect those prayers to be effective, we've got to be willing to forgive other people. If we don't forgive others, we show we don't really get our need for forgiveness. So we're asking God for forgiveness from hearts that aren't really wanting forgiveness. The hearts that don't fully realize that they need forgiveness. So we're heaping up empty phrases, just like Jesus told us not to do. What's more hypocritical? than asking God to do for us what we won't do for somebody else. So friends, you don't get to have an intimate relationship with Him and hold a grudge against somebody else. You just don't get to do it. You can't have an intimate 
relationship with the Father and hold a grudge against somebody else? Do you feel distant from Him? From God? Do you find yourself constantly judging other people? Angry at them? Unable to let things go or give people the benefit of the doubt? Those two things could be connected. I think we can even say it more strongly than that. Those things are connected. Don't expect joy in Christ while you're holding on to resentment of others. You don't get to do that. I'll take it one step further because I think Jesus does. If you hold a grudge against somebody else and you're not convicted about that at all, if you feel justified in it and aren't moving toward forgiveness and if possible, as far as it depends on you towards restoration, then you have good reason to wonder whether you've actually experienced God's forgiveness for yourself. One of the reasons for this sermon Jesus gives us in chapter 7 as he's winding the sermon down. Jesus paints this horrifying picture of people who reach the end, who on the day of judgment that the Bible so consistently tells us is coming, meet God and say, Lord, Look what we did. We did all these mighty works in your name. We even cast out demons in your name. Only to have Jesus tell them, depart from me, for I never knew you. Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount so that you won't have that experience someday, thinking that you're with him when you're not. And in this prayer... And in the comments on it, in verses 14 and 15, Jesus is giving you a powerful test that you should apply to yourself. If you're holding a grudge against someone that you're unwilling to let go of, you have good reason to believe that you do not know Jesus. And a good place to begin praying to Him, Father, forgive us of our sins, would be to pray for forgiveness for your inability to forgive. And you can trust Him to give you what you need. Last but not least, pray for deliverance from evil. Not from temptation per se. That's the way it reads on the surface. God doesn't tempt us. James makes that clear. And, and testing is inevitable. The New Testament makes that clear. All of us come into times of trial or testing. That's how one of the ways God gets us ready. For his kingdom, he purges us of things by his testing of us. What what we're praying for here goes hand in hand with the second phrase, deliver us from evil. To not be led into temptation is to be delivered from evil, not into temptation, not into this place where we can't resist temptation, where we give in. In other words, protect me from the evil that will woo me, from the evil that will hit me. From the evil in me, the evil outside of me that's coming from me. From everything that's going to tempt me to believe that you're not good. That you're not worth trusting. That I can't hold on. That it isn't worth the cost. Protect me from evil. It assumes that life in this stage where we wait on Christ to return is a war. There's a changing of the guard that's happening, but it hasn't happened fully yet. There is still a ruler of this world who's holding on with everything, who's fighting like he's got nothing to lose. And you're crazy if you think you can resist the evil that's in you or the evil that's outside of you on your own. You can't. 
So Jesus is saying, realistically, because evil is there, because it's too big for you, pray to God, deliver me from what I can't avoid on my own. The beautiful promise is that when you pray like this, you're praying to your Father in heaven. The one who loves you, even though you failed him. And the one who's actually powerful enough to do what you can't do. When you pray to him like this, you pray with the promise that he hears you. And the promise that he will give you everything that you need. So we pray together now. Father, we know how far short our lives fall from your kingdom's values, from your will that's expressed so clearly to us. And we know that even in our prayers, one of the things we struggle with is being okay with your will being done. We don't even necessarily like to give up control. That dies hard in us. And we know that effective prayer means dying to that desire. Help us, Father. By your Spirit, help us to pray to you in a way that's honest, that's open, that's genuine, but that's open-handed too. That wants your glory, your kingdom, your will more than we want our own. That trusts you for what we can't do for ourselves. That's willing to give up even the grudges that we think we justly hold. And that knows there's evil coming for us in this world that we can't resist. Give us prayer lives that reflect Jesus' prayers. And we pray too that you would make us a people, a culture, a community of prayers. Rallied around these themes so that we're praying them not just for ourselves but for each other. And we're praying them with one another. And we're working together to make ourselves a people of prayer. We pray that you'd make us that people. That you use this word we've considered today to that end. That we'd rally to it and remember it and help each other hold on in it. That's our prayer to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.